Jim Jordan's on the warpath again, but we won't be talking about that today. You'll have to come back tomorrow for that conversation. We're loaded up with other things to discuss on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Let's get going. Ohio Republicans have been cutting income taxes for 20 years, claiming it improves the economy and attracts employers and workers. Leila, how has that worked out? We ask as lawmakers once again prepare to cut the taxes. Yeah, this is in light of HB1, which which seeks to create this flat income tax rate of 2.75% that mostly benefits the rich with a whole host of consequences for local governments and institutions because of the way they plan to pay for that tax cut, basically by shifting the tax burden. So reporter Lucas DiPrilli took a, a very close look at the past two decades of income t- income tax cuts in the state and, and the claims that they would bolster the state's economy. And he wanted to know whether that turned out to be true. And surprisingly, both right and left-leaning sources who Lucas spoke to told him that actually the effect of tax cuts on the economy has been pretty minimal because they don't happen in a vacuum. There are usually many other forces at play. For example, you know, let's go back to 2005, shortly after the state legislature began reducing income tax rates, Ohio went through the Great Recession, which caused such devastation economically in Ohio that it, it washed away those more subtle economic effects of, of the tax policy. And income taxes were cut again in 2019, which reduced everybody by 4%. But then COVID hit, and we saw economic devastation again that all but canceled out that tax cut. As for the rest of it, you know, Lucas found that economists tend to see what they want in the numbers, depending on whether they're right or left-leaning. One right-leaning source says that GDP tends to grow when taxes are cut, but that's just a correlation. That's not necessarily proof that the tax cut is driving GDP growth. In reality, when Lucas looked at the state's GDP during the periods when taxes were cut, he found the state's GDP was actually trailing the national GDP. Of course, you know, the right-leaning analyst says the state would have been worse off without that tax cut. But, you know, he's seeing what his politics trained him to see. Median income also has trailed the national median. And and while poverty rates in Ohio and the country have been dropping, Ohio's poverty rate is actually higher than the national average, despite these tax cuts. So, you know, through these economists, Lucas just does a great job of exploring what else besides tax cuts the state needs to do to attract business and make the state a better environment for investment. It's a great story. And and I, I feel like Lucas really managed to take a dense topic and make it very accessible. Here's the thing. There's nothing in what he found that backs up the claim that it's good for the economy. I mean, we were in better shape before they started than we are now. In the macro, we're, we were better off state before. And they can play all sorts of games interpreting the numbers, but they do not have the evidence to show after 20 years of this, this is definitely a good thing. Right. And it's all optics. It's just the the idea that they can trot it out and say, we're delivering you a tax cut. But, but also that trickles down to all the institutions that we depend on uh, locally, and we're going to have to still fund those institutions in some other way because there are all these caveats in HB1 that you know they're pulling from other places to fund that tax cut, which mostly benefits the wealthy. It's, this is, it's a very bad plan. 
Yeah, I. what's frustrating about this is we all end up paying more in taxes as a result of this because all they've done is shifted the burden to local governments, exactly. which have raised taxes in ways that I would have never thought possible when I arrived in Ohio 27 years ago. But, but the local communities care about their local governments and they care about their local services. They want to have as, as good a quality service in their neighborhood as they can get. That's the most tangible result of their taxes. So they keep increasing them. Right. Voters go to the polls, except in Parma schools, and they uh, 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 raise those taxes in such ways it completely eradicates whatever small savings you've had from the state, unless you're wealthy. These tax cuts have rewarded the wealthy over and over again, and this proposal now would do so even more. So that's right. This is a failure, and really, I guess what this is about is they're trying to to just reduce government. I mean, in the end, what is their goal? I don't know, but I feel. I mean, I feel like what what's going to end up happening is that we'll see. You know, we'll all be upset that taxes are rising locally, and they they'll get to say, "Hey, we cut your taxes." It's those democratic communities that you're living in that are raising your tax. You know, raising yeah. your taxes when when it's all fallout from this bad policy. You know, interestingly, when it comes to attracting economic development to the state, one very important point that came out in the story is that. Really, few people would uproot their lives and move to Ohio just to save a few hundred bucks on their tax bill. But in the meantime, a tax cut plan like HB1, as it's written, would cause such great harm to our local institutions and cause them to either slash their budgets or go back to taxpayers. And, you know, one economist told Lucas, what we've done is defund communities and the off chance we may bring in some money from the outside, some imaginary investor. And I just thought that's so that was right on the money. I actually, I, I think there's a counter to what you just said. I think people do look at the property tax bill when they're looking to move. And the property tax bills mm. in Ohio are horrifying. I mean, I it, the amount of money you pay in property taxes here is pretty darn high and going up because of this. So I think this probably, you're not looking at the income tax rate in a state and what the, the potential savings are, the cuts there. But when you start looking at some of the property tax bills, we added the property taxes to our house of the week to show people what the tax bite is for that. It's astounding every week mm -hmm. when you look at that, how much, how many tens of thousands of dollars people have to pay in property taxes for some of these nice homes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What could be wrong with putting a police officer in every public and private school in Ohio, as Governor Mike DeWine proposes at a cost of nearly $400 million over two years? Lisa, who are the people that are raising objections to this? Yeah, there are several groups that are concerned about this proposal. So Governor Mike DeWine is proposing $388 million in one-time federal dollars to fund school resource officers, or SROs, in all public and private schools in Ohio. Um, but the ACLU, the Children's Defense Fund, and other groups had a news conference yesterday. They say they're worried that the presence of an SRO exacerbates what they call the school-to-prison pipeline. Line. They point out that black and Latino students are more likely to be disciplined, and he's concerned about overreaction to minor infractions like carrying a cell phone or whatever that would lead to suspension, expulsion, or arrest of students. And, you know, they just feel that that just 
speeds them right from juvenile delinquency into the adult prison system. Now, uh, DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney says that the 2022 bill that DeWine signed last year that allows teachers to carry guns in the classroom with 20 hours of training had some schools saying, we don't want that. We would rather have a an SRO, a student resource officer. So this $388 million proposal is kind of an offshoot of that. But the uh, groups, uh, the ACLU and other groups say that they would like to see more flexibility on spending these funds for SROs. They say they should allow districts to uh, to hire more counselors instead of being forced to have an SRO. And they're pointing out that the, the the ratio of students to counselor should be one counselor to 250. That's recommended. But in Ohio, it's one uh, counselor for every 403 students. They also want to increase training and qualification for SROs. Currently, they get 40 hours of basic and 40 hours of additional training on over two dozen topics, including active shooter drills, social media safety, drug trends, and so on. They say some of these topics deserve 40 hours apiece. And they also want SROs to send data to a central, you know, database to inform spending on these SROs. If my memory serves, and it often doesn't, John Oliver did a big takeout on the issue with police officers and schools and showed pretty emphatically that this does turn what is not normally a criminal charge into a criminal charge. That that if a kid misbehaves in a school, as kids do because they're kids, Without the police officer there, the school deals with it, unless it's something very serious. Mm -hmm. But with the officer there, it ends up going into the juvenile courts far more frequently, and data shows that that's most heavily used against people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an eye-opener because I, I always thought, why not have an officer in the school? What could be bad about that? But if it is funneling kids into the criminal justice system when they really shouldn't be, that's a bad idea. And once they're there, there's no stopping it. And I don't know that there's data that the presence of an SRO, you know, can uh, stop things like mass shootings. I don't know if there's any data out there on that. So, uh, but the House Finance Committee Chair Jay Edwards, the Republican from Nelsonville, says everyone agrees with the SRO concept, but how we get there is in question because they have to discuss long-term funding. This is a one-time pot of money. Can Ohio continue to get federal money for this or do they have to, you know, pay for it themselves? And he actually toured a Northeast Ohio Jewish school. It's been having problems with anti-Semitic issues. And he said that they're asking for flexibility to use on other security efforts at their school. Well, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Schools know their own schools and their own students best. So I I think it's great to have almost $400 million to spend on schools and to figure out how to make schools safer, but they should be up to the local district and the board and the parents how that's going to be achieved. I have to say there are schools there are officers in my kids' schools who are like celebrities. They know all the kids' names. They high-five them. They show up at the carnivals. And they've had a really great relationship. Now, I don't doubt the data that's out there. So maybe if they had more training, which is one of the tenants they were talking about, if they had more flexibility to make it work for every district, then this could be a positive. Yeah, except this is this is going on that theory that one good guy with a gun is what it takes to beat a bad guy with a gun. And Uvalde proved that's not the case. You had a guy with an assault weapon and the police were all scared to go in because they're afraid of the weapon. The recording showed it. So, Mm -hmm. so one officer with a gun, a handgun 
is not going to stop somebody right. with an AK. No. I mean, the, no. the, the um, AR-15, the Washington Post is a great project running this week that traces how that went from being a, a niche gun to the most popular weapon that gun makers make and what it does to the body. It's a fascinating story. And there's 20 million of them out there, and they've been used almost exclusively now in the last few years of shootings. Not completely exclusively, but almost and a cop with a gun is not a match for somebody with... Right. If you want to stop school shootings, then what you need to do is, you know, stop the gun proliferation of guns. I mean, there needs to be more gun control. I'm not, not arguing against that at all. So if this doesn't really work to stop school shootings, what what does it do? Well, I mean, I think that it actually creates this relationship between kids and officers where they have a better relationship with them. And we talk, you know, about the dichotomy between the two and you know, the community policing that they have a relationship. And I think that's good for a community. Yeah, You should go watch that John Oliver segment because those, those, those guys were popular too, but the result was a whole lot of kids going into the criminal justice system who shouldn't have. You're listening to today in Ohio. What's the first state park where drilling permits could be approved now that the state law has changed to give drillers the rights to drill on Ohio state lands, Laura? This is Salt Fork State Park. It's 7,000 acres with forests, meadows, streams, valleys, and lakes in southeast Ohio. And turns out Encino Energy, which is a major oil and gas driller based in Houston, has already approached at least one landowner nearby. This was three days before Governor Mike DeWine signed House Bill 507. Remember, that's the one that defined natural gas as green energy and changed the idea for drilling in state parks or under state parks from may to shall so that they have a right to. And that legislation, remember, passed both chambers of the General Assembly in a whirlwind, no committee testimony, hardly a moment for any opposition to organize. And all of a sudden, the drillers are sending letters. It's unclear how quickly the drilling might begin in parks. Apparently, according to a couple of of people that Jake Zuckerman talked to, Encino has already been turned down for a permit to to drill underneath the park and get the reserves there. And what Mike DeWine's office, all they would say is that they have to go through the rulemaking process before they can approve anything. It's going to be very sad if this experiment ends up destroying or very much wrecking one of the, the beautiful state parks. This is an awfully big gamble. It is a big gamble. And it's not just the people who use the parks. It's the people who live next to the parks. And it could be long term. You know, it's going to be it could be loud or smelly. There could be pollution while they're doing it. They're going to be talking about fracking so that they're drilling down and then sideways under the ground and then using that high pressure combination of chemicals and water to try to ferret out all of the minerals. But we don't know the long-term ramifications, if there would be earthquakes or water pollution far in the future. We are taking some of the last pristine land in Ohio that has been set aside for nature and all of our enjoyment and and selling out for a cup, what, like a couple million dollars? We don't even know how many much money we could get out of this. Somehow, I just don't think John Kasich would assign this. Mike DeWine holds himself out as the friend of the parks, but I don't think John Kasich would have agreed to this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember that Ohio fishing contest where a couple of guys got caught cheating big time, bringing international attention to Cleveland? They were supposed to go on trial Monday, Lisa. What happened? 
They copped a plea. Uh, Jacob Runyon and Chase Kaminsky pled guilty yesterday to cheating, which is a fifth-degree felony, and unlawful ownership of wild animals, a fourth-degree misdemeanor. They will have their fishing licenses suspended for up to three years. The judge will decide. Uh, Kaminsky forfeited his $100,000 Ranger bass boat to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And in this plea deal, felony charges of attempted theft and possession of criminal tools were dropped and prosecutors agreed to recommend six months probation for the men. There will be a May 11th hearing to decide the the probation and the suspension of the licenses. And as you remember, this was a video that went viral. This was the September 30th Lake Erie Walleye Trail, a hugely popular fishing contest. Their catch was stuffed with lead weights and frozen walleye fillets. And this video, as they were pulling the weights out at this Gordon Park Way Station, went viral and people just went nuts. But this was part of a string of rather remarkable wins at the (laughs) Lake Erie Walleye Trail by these two guys. So, yeah. But Mike O'Malley, the prosecutor, said, hey, he was ready to go to trial. He had 30 people on his witness list, and he was ready to go. This is probably the right end. I mean, do they really need to go to prison for this? What is prison prison for? I want to know what happens to that boat. Or are the state people who patrol the lakes going to keep the boat a hundred thousand dollar boat music is it a patrol boat will this go to auction and and be some notorious boat that hits the water it doesn't really Corey Schaefer said he's going to look into it um but yeah odnr has it right now yeah. and that's separate than the prize boat they were trying to win from this a hundred thousand dollar boat and as oh, you know gonna... laura oh go ahead lisa no I, i'm surely they're gonna keep it i mean a hundred thousand dollar boat why not well, although they do auction seized property, there's been a lot of seized property over the years. And if they sold that for $100,000, you know, it pays for somebody's salary for a year. We'll have to see. We're going to find out where it's been. I, you know, hope they've had it indoors, not out rotting in the sun. You're listening to Today in Ohio. As many families grapple with the costs and logistics of child care, are there lessons in Cleveland history from more than a century and a half ago? Laura, you found this. This was a fascinating look back at where we had it right. Yeah, I was really surprised to find this. I was just kind of scrolling the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History, which has so many fascinating that, articles That's what in Laura it. does in her free time. <laughs> No, that's what I do in my work time, trying to find features for Women's History Month in March. So in the, for a nickel a day in 1880s, there were a bunch of Cleveland women's philanthropies that ran nurseries. They provided food, clothing, medical care, and a safe place to learn while their parents worked. This evolved into the Cleveland Day Nursery and Free Kindergarten Association, which stayed intact until 1970. They had nurseries. They supervised public school playgrounds. They operated a Cleveland kindergarten training school for teachers. They helped create the standards for child care centers. And I was thinking, oh, like with all this momentum, like why didn't it turn into something bigger? Like why what, didn't we have child care for all? But then talk to this professor from um, Case Western Reserve University, Renee Santillis, and she was saying, you know, this wasn't a popular idea at the time because there's always had this fraught relationship with the idea that women should be staying home with their kids. And 
the idea that it's an individual problem. And this is a country where individuals solve their own problems. And so there was always the, the temperance movement wasn't for childcare. The settlement houses weren't necessarily for childcare. Instead, they wanted widows or mothers pensions where you just got paid to, to take care of your own children. But those were really fraught as well, because they, they weren't equitable, like they didn't go to everyone. So it was just this kind of interesting push-pull. And I didn't ever think of childcare as an urban issue, but it didn't become an issue until the Industrial Revolution when women started going to work in factories and not everybody was living on a farm with multiple generations. Yeah. So it was interesting that the the solution, and it's 150 years ago almost, so uh, clearly they were putting some thought into it. Check out Laura's story. It's on Cleveland.com. Why did Cuyahoga County Republicans boot State Representative Tom Patton from his posts and say they won't endorse him for at least a couple of years? Did they actually hold some kind of trial to reach that decision, Layla? I can't tell if they did or didn't. How how did they arrive at this decision? But this is all continued fallout from the whole flap over the Republicans who voted alongside Democrats to elect Representative Jason Stevens for House Speaker, even, even though... The House GOP caucus had voted the previous November to endorse Representative Derek Marin. Matt Abens, the chair of uh, Cuyahoga County GOP Disciplinary Committee, told Patton last month that he was being investigated for violating the spirit of a party bylaw <laughs> that all party members and officers are strongly urged to not support or endorse a non-Republican for partisan political office. I just want to point out, Jason Stevens is a Republican, but Mm -hmm. Patton, mind you, is a 20-year legislative veteran and the only House Republican from Cuyahoga County. So the disciplinary committee noted that in a series of text messages with Strongsville GOP PAC President Shannon Burns in late December, Patton forcefully denied that he was part of a movement to deny Marin the Speaker's gavel. He called it BS. And in, a, in text messages to colleagues, Patton conveyed, though, that he, he voted for Stevens because Patton Marin, or uh, I'm sorry, Marin wasn't good for him. I mean, Marin supported an anti-union right to work bill and changing the state's prevailing wage law, which ensures that workers on large local government construction projects should be paid at least the average wage paid to nearby workers on similar jobs. And that's kind of a bad look for the only Republican from highly pro-union Cuyahoga County. So... The Cuyahoga County Republican Party on Thursday voted to kick him uh, off two party committees and they refused to endorse him in the next election. Patton was also censured by the Cuyahoga County Republicans, which is a a symbolic gesture, symbolic punishment that other county Republicans or uh, I mean, county Republican parties have given to other House Republicans who supported Stevens. Some some longtime Republicans in the county were aghast at this. I saw a communication about this that I'm not sure was meant to be public, so I won't say who it was from, but it involved names of people everybody would recognize. And they stood up in the meeting and defended Patton vigorously, pointing out that he violated nothing in their bylaws. They talked about that there was, this was a trial and there were witnesses, but that he didn't do anything wrong and that this was wrong. And the communication said that that it was like there was blood in the water, that this is not the Republican Party that most people would recognize. And these people just wanted to slice him to pieces without real cause. That's shocking, right? That that you'd have longstanding Republican leaders defending him one after another 
And it doesn't matter because the Trumpsters, the MAGA folks just want to destroy. Yes. And those defenders should probably watch out because apparently these bylaws can be manipulated and read any way that the party leadership wishes to. And uh, this is really troubling. But they're feasting on their own. He is the only one in the legislature from Cuyahoga County that's a Republican. You know, you also have Matt Dolan in the in the Senate. But what are you thinking? You have you barely have a foothold. That's exactly true. I I I can't understand by what reading of these bylaws you can stretch it to include this vote for Stevens. I mean, Stevens is a Republican. You can't say that he violated the spirit of the bylaw by voting for him. It's it. That's absolutely ludicrous. And he said, I learned of Stevens candidacy a day before. So up until a day before he was with Marin, it's not that he lied back in December. It's that suddenly he was never high on Marin. Suddenly Stevens was an alternative and he went yeah. with him. It's the way it's supposed to work. And yet look at what, what they're doing. It's uh it's ugly times. Lisa, were you going to say something? No, you actually said it for me. I said the Republicans are eating their own, but you said just that. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson getting into the restaurant business in Cleveland? Lisa? Lefty's famous cheesesteaks, hoagies, and grill is moving into the Northeast Ohio market sometime this summer. The location is to be determined, and the deal is still yet to be finalized. But the founder of this restaurant chain, Sam Barry, says that uh, he's a friend of Deshaun Watson's, and Watson is an equity owner in the company. He says that, you know, Watson's not only my partner, he's my brother, and we believe in Deshaun. So this, this Lefty started in 2010 in Livonia, in the Detroit area of Michigan. Most of them are in Michigan. There are two in Florida, one in San Diego, California, and I think one in Toledo. So, but this is pretty typical. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, professional athletes do get into the restaurant business, so this is not unusual. Uh, This is supposed to be serving hoagies, burgers, loaded fries, corned beef, sides, and desserts, and I assume the aforementioned cheesesteaks. The, the the one of the locations everybody in my neck of the woods is talking about is an old KFC. It's Cedar and Taylor. They're not talking about locations. What's interesting is Deshaun Watson has obviously been very, very controversial. There are a lot of people that are angry that the Browns brought him here because of all of the allegations of his sexual abuse. I, wouldn't that also apply to a restaurant? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't there be a population that will not go there no matter what because of his affiliation with it? But how many people would even know that? I mean, you know, how many people know about Chick-fil-A's political leanings, you know? So it's, you know, unless they use his face, you know, as the face of the franchise, I can't imagine that they would draw that correlation. Yeah, good point. Well, I'm glad we did our part to draw the correlation. (laughs) All right. I don't think Layla and I will be meeting there for lunch anytime soon. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I'm going to skip ahead here because Layla will not be here tomorrow. What percentage of the people inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland are women? And what do some prominent women of rock think about that? Layla. The the statistics are really undeniable here. It's it's hard not to acknowledge that sexism is at play when you hear the numbers. Of the 949 people inducted into the Rock Hall since 1986, only 80 are women. I My head almost blew off my shoulders when I read that. That means that 91.6% of the Rock Hall inductees are men, 
and just 8.4% are women. The 2023 class has more women than in years past, but many of them, like Kate Bush, have been waiting for years to be inducted. All of this led Courtney Love, who was the lead singer of the band Hole, to write a scathing series of tweets and an essay in The Guardian accusing the Rock Hall organization, and particularly its mostly male nominating committee, of rampant sexism and misogyny. She referred to the Rock Hall as a boomer tomb, controlled by male music industry elites who have really marginalized women from the very first induction in 1986. And that trend continues with what seems to be ignorance and hostility toward women in music. Others in the rock world, including journalists, echoed all of those feelings that she expressed. And it's it's really hard not to see it that way when you hear those stats. That is a shameful, shameful record. Courtney Love points to the fact that most of the members of the nominating board and most of the official Rock Hall voters are men. She says of the 31 people on the nominating board, just nine are women. Of, of a thousand or so official Rock Hall voters who are usually musicians and industry elites, 90% are men. Yeah, I, I, the, the easy fix would be to take the, the, the five most recent classes of inductees who are still alive, let them do the nominations. Get, get these guys out. This is an abomination. You know, and this is Cleveland's unique landmark. There is no other Rock Hall, and this is embarrassing. And less than 9%. It's just, how do you begin to justify that? They've been inducting classes for decades, had plenty of times to fix it. How long did, did it take before they finally put Tina Turner in? I mean, it was one of those, she's one of the the, the, the biggest stars ever, one of the biggest rockers, longest. And it took until a couple of years ago just to get her in. And all these others have gotten in in the meantime. Right, it's a shock. Right. I mean, Meg White might make it this year as part of the White Stripes, but Courtney Love points out she would only be the third female drummer ever inducted in Rock Hall history. That's crazy. Well, the, the Hall is doing a big celebration for Shaka Khan, I think, this right. week. and. Because it's Jack Women's Khan's History Month. This is, this is the month they get to check some boxes for that. They get some pats on the back. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, and Shaka Khan has been eligible for the Rock Hall since 2003, but hasn't been voted in despite being nominated three times as a solo artist and four times as a member of Rufus featuring Shaka Khan. I, Lisa. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I think that if you, that's the reason maybe why they expanded who they're going to be accepting into the Rock Hall of Fame, because they were pretty much sticking to rock and roll until recently. So, you know, if you look at rock in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there weren't a lot of women in rock, and that's a whole problem in and of itself. But I'm just saying that the field of rock women is pretty small. But not I was talking eligibility, to though. About I mean, right? Eligibility is, I mean, you know, Shaka Khan's been eligible since 2003. There were plenty of women in rock since 2003 or, you know, in that era. I, I, I don't know if I... If I agree. I mean, no, I, I asked Mike. Mike Norman is our entertainment manager and he covered the, the music scene for decades. So he's, you know, he's one of the rock and roll, rock call voters. He's covered the opening. And I, I said the same thing that Lisa did to him. I said, you know, you would expect it to be lopsided because there were far more men. He goes, yeah, yeah. So, but it's still probably a third are, are mm-hmm. women and they got less than 9%. Mm-hmm. If they would have focused on this, if they would have been more deliberate in, in trying to be more welcoming, this number wouldn't be this low. 
they this is cooked and i i think the critics are right this is a bunch of people in the industry not necessarily music lovers or people that that understand it why not let the musicians mm-hmm. be the ones that nominate it's it's they're the ones they know it they they know the roots they know where it comes from let them put together the nominee list each year and then and then see what happens cuz what they're doing isn't working good conversation good fodder that's it for today in Ohio for a Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. 